this is Terry Beatley, your host of What If We've Been Wrong? I'm shining light into some dark places so that beauty, goodness, and truth defeat the schemes of the enemy. It's true, people are perishing for lack of knowledge, and we're instructed to have nothing to do with the evil deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what I do on What If We've Been Wrong? Rethink, explore, and uncover some hidden truths so that more people can experience an abundant life and the joy of being set free from the shackles that hold us in prison. Welcome to What If We've Been Wrong? All right, so this week we are still in the throes of the recent Pennsylvania uh, report from that grand jury, the findings um, on what happened inside the Catholic Church, at least in Pennsylvania. I've been under resources like Church Militant, and, and they've made it extremely clear that what's now coming down the pike is what's been happening in the state of New York. And and there are cries out um, across the country that there ought to be independent investigations in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. As a Catholic woman, I'm all for this, and I'm all for um, being a voice for the victims and encouraging the laity to continue to put pressure, and I call it loving pressure, on the leadership to do the right thing. We now know that it's not even so much a problem with pedophilia. We know where the real problem um, is surfacing, and it's because of the homosexual infiltration inside the Catholic Church. Now, I share that with you uh, boldly, um, knowing that I have friends who are homosexual, uh, maybe even some relatives or, or who suffer with this. And, but I also share it because of my own experience in my Catholic reversion. Now, I was baptized as an infant in Fairfax County, Virginia. And I remember going through first confession and first communion, but for whatever reason, that's as far as I remember. And um, I'm not sure if I only received communion once or if I received it many times, but I just remember one time. And I think my parents agreed to disagree. My father was an Episcopalian, non-practicing. My mother, Catholic. And and out of four kids, I think three or four of us were confirmed, but um, very poorly catechized. And life went on. And years later, when I reverted back to the Catholic Church, uh, which is really not that long ago, um, after years of searching and research and reading books and some personal experiences, uh, when I was brought back into the Catholic Church, one of the first uh, parishes that my family attended, um, and I'm not going to name which one it was, but it was in a rural area, and... I remember thinking there was something wrong, um, that there was a disconnect with the priest, so that, that I, just like my radar was going off. And knowing that I'd been married outside of the Catholic Church and my marriage needed to be validated, I uh, remember running this past the priest and he said, oh, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. It's like, well, I know theologically he's wrong. And so I thought this would be the perfect time to go ahead and ask him, you know, where is the Catholic Church now on the issue of homosexuality? And what the priest shared blew my mind. And again, I knew he was wrong. What the priest said was, oh, Terry, the Catholic Church has been 
uh, in the dark ages regarding human sexuality for so long, but we're evolving. We're evolving. And so I'm here to let everybody know he literally thought I was wet clay in his hands, or figuratively wet clay in his hands, and he could make me think whatever he thought, you know, what was proper, because I guess he figured that I didn't know anything. And so he proceeded to tell me that the church had been in the dark ages on human sexuality for so long, and that the church was evolving. I said, well, Father, what do you mean the church is evolving? And he said, well, Terry, when I came here to this parish seven years ago, there were two homosexual men. They were in a relationship. And then he proceeded to tell me that um, that that was fine with him because, you know, it's all about love. And I want to say right now that there's a big difference between love thy neighbor and have sex with thy neighbor. We're talking about two completely separate things. And I said, well, Father, what do you mean it's all about love? And he said, well, Terry, it's, it's you know, if we could just, you know, return to just understanding what love is all about. And so I let him go with this for a while. And I said, oh, well, if it's all about love, well, what if a father wanted to show love to his two, let's say to his girls in a sexual way? Because, you know, if it's all about love, well, then that, sh that rationale should transfer over to that situation. Now, as I look back, I cannot believe I, I had the audacity to ask such a question of a priest, but I knew at that moment I had to, because I thought, I'm going to go walk this dog with him, you know, because if he's going to try to rationalize homosexual behavior and call it just love and not sex, then we'll walk that dog, or I thought, I'll walk that dog with him, and let's see if he'd walk it all the way into uh, incest. And that's exactly what this man did. And I knew right then I was at a parish with a fallen priest and I was not blaming the Catholic Church, um, but I just knew that the Lord was letting me, as I returned to the Catholic Church, God was going to dunk me in head first. And I was almost like a test. Am I going to run? Or am I going to hang in there and help Mother Church, you know, you know, help get cleaned up and get restored back to her righteous position of where she should be for all the right reasons? And so after the priest, basically, he dropped his keys on the floor. When he came back up, he was all red in the face. And he was sort of bumbling over his words. I'm sure trying to figure out how in the world is he going to answer that question. And then what he ended up bumbling and saying was that, well, well, as long, well, as long as it's two consenting adults. And I put my mouth, my hands over my mouth, and I thought, well, I cannot, I, I cannot believe this man has just said this. So I pivoted away. I pivoted away from that topic, and I said, Father, I'd like to get my master's degree, which is absolutely true, in either theology or evangelism and catechesis. And I said, uh, where would be a great school to go to? And, and I said, what do you think of Franciscan University? And for those of you out there who are listening, but you have no clue 
you know, what or where even Franciscan University is. It's based in Ohio. And it's a very, very good, you know, Orthodox Catholic University. Well, he gasped. And the first thing he said was, oh my gosh, when I came here seven years ago, I heard they were sending their teenagers every summer to Franciscan University to a summer camp. And I put an end to that immediately. And I thought, this is unbelievable. And then I asked him, where not no I asked him who was his favorite theologian and this is when all the cards were laid out and he said oh by far my favorite theologian was uh, uh, father Richard Curran C-U-R-R-A-N and Curran ended up losing his collar being basically kicked out of the Catholic Church and any Catholic University he became a Methodist Father Curran, or Curran, he he basically supported any kind, as far as I can tell, any kind of sexual deviancy. And so I think it's important as we move forward to recognize that uh, that the enemy has infiltrated within the Catholic Church, but it's not going to implode the church. But this is a time for leadership. This is a time to protect the victims. This is a time to make sure there are no more future victims. And this is a time to clean house. And as a woman, I know what it's like to clean, but then I know what it's like to really do a thorough spring cleaning. And, and that means every nook and cranny, everything gets looked at, everything gets touched, and there's, it's almost like a purification. And I believe, as a Catholic woman who wants to see the church thrive, I mean, it's where we go to receive the Eucharist and, and all the benefits and all the sacraments. So I believe that a big housekeeping is going on, and I want to encourage every single bishop who's striving to have a whole uh, to live a holy life uh, the bishops the cardinals the priests to be men of courage to be men of boldness because this thing saying that it, oh it's that we've had a problem with pedophilia and we're going to clean that up that's one of the problems but until we as as Catholics can wrap our head around, it's been immorality, and the biggest part of that immorality is there's been a problem of homosexual priests or homosexuals becoming priests, and homosexuality is a sin for the sake of the church, for God's sake, hung on the cross, you know, for our sins. Let's be people who and let, and let the church have bold leaders who will call out a sin who are not going to placate uh, who are not going to placate sinners and sinful leaders uh, anymore I mean it's over I call it game over and this is coming from a woman who loves the Catholic Church who returned to the Catholic Church and and I'm interviewing today James Burkon um, he's a theology major he actually graduated from Franciscan University and he's also very well read in theology of the body got a way of being able to explain things where I think just most anybody can understand. So the other day when I reached out to you and I said, um, uh, what, do you, what do you think? What are you making of the Pennsylvania report? And let me just kind of toss that out to you right now. Give, give us a little 
short summary of what you're thinking about. I totally agree with you. There needs to be a complete total house cleaning. And um, I've been paying, like you, I've been paying attention to Michael Voris on um, churchmilitant.com. And he was mentioned that uh, there was a bishop coming over to the United States who um, who helped clean out the problem in Chile. And I hope I hope he's going to do the job here. And I also heard that Voris said there could be a RICO investigation because uh, RICO was um, – Michael Voris brought up that RICO – was a racketeering. Um, it was in, it was used to take care of racketeering and crimes that took place across state lines to break up organized crime across state lines. Well, that would apply to Pennsylvania because one of the predator priests was transferred to San Diego. And when they asked World about him, World responded, "There's nothing wrong." So we know that's a lie right there. Um, but regarding the reaction, when I read it, I got home uh, Tuesday night and I started looking up Matt Walsh, the Matt Walsh blog. Yeah. Um, if any of your listeners know who he is or don't know who he is, definitely look him up. Just type in Matt Walsh blog um, into Google and you'll find him. He has a lot of good information um, on the scandal. And I was also looking at Michael Voris. And, uh, you know, fr- frankly, Terry, I-, I couldn't sleep the entire night. I stayed up the entire night. I just right. – I was in shock. I was – disgusted i felt betrayed um as as many people do you know i felt ashamed um i felt scared fearful because um there was a report that came out in the arlington diocese um it's on a blog but the attorney general needs to look at it regarding homosexual priests in the arlington diocese and a couple of the guys who were inferred in that report by father james haley who uh who was um had his faculty stripped um, but he was doing the right thing, uh, as far as we know. Um, I went to confession with a couple of these priests who were inferred in that report re- regarding uh, being homosexuals. So it, it's something that shakes you. It makes you wonder, you know, what could have happened to me kind of thing. And uh, when I was at Steubenville, I got my master's degree in theology in Steubenville. Um, I learned under Scott Hahn, learned under Mark Miravalli. It, it scares you in the sense because – Steubenville is not far from Pittsburgh. I mean, it's a great university. It's orthodox, but it makes you question everyone now. You know, who knew what, when, you you, you know, and and the good thing is, uh, and I'm not throwing Steubenville under the bus. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, people talk, you know, it makes you question, you know, who knew what, like I said, who knew what, when, you know, Steubenville ain't going anywhere. Thank God for that. Um, But uh, it's a slap in the face when you're trying to uh, study Orthodox Catholic teaching. When I was at Steubenville too, Terry, the guys I hung out with the most were the seminarians. I never joined the uh, what was called the pre-theologate. That's kind of like pre-seminary for guys in college. Mm-hmm. But one of my best friends from there is a priest. I knew plenty of guys who studied for the priest and priesthood. And Terry, they were they were great men. Some of the finest men I've ever met. Some of them have moved on to the priesthood. Others have discerned out of it. They now have beautiful families. One of them in particular is a speaker, Paul Kim. Um, he was a classmate of mine, great guy. He reaches out to youth, and he gave a very good response to the uh, crisis. Um, so it's just uh, I've been in between wanting to scream at the top of my lungs till I'm hoarse and, and, and wanting to cry till I can shed no more tears. It's just it's I, I think with everyone, it's 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 something that's gut wrenching. You know, I thought. I thought Penn State was bad. I thought Michigan State was bad, and they are. Let's not take away from the victims there. Right. But um, I mean, this is this is a disaster of epic proportions. You know, I never. I was talking to my dad Saturday night at dinner, and he he never in his wildest dreams thought this would happen, and neither neither did I. I mean, this is just. Well, that's why I said earlier. It's like a big housekeeping's going on because who in the world would have thought? Yeah. A Theodore McCarrick would have been. 
what do you call it? Defrocked? Is that what you, what's the word for? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was kicked out of the car, College of Cardinals. And I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, he, he should be he should be defrocked. As pre, he should be excommunicated. I mean, for what he did. I mean, you I know, know. <laughs> I mean, there should be nothing like no retirement, no nothing. Go flip burgers at, at, at Burger King, but they might not want him there either. But I mean, now with. The, oh, uh, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> with Cardinal World. Um, so it's it's like yeah. from top down. So I mean, from that perspective, I'm encouraged. Now, what did have me worried is when I heard, and again, maybe he's trying to figure out how they're going to go about this. But it was the the man who's who's the the head of the USCCB out of Houston, Houston. Um, yeah, I, I forget his name, but it, it, that's not even like it, that that important. But when he said that. He he was not identifying homosexuality as the root problem. And Jimmy, as long if we can't get to that point, if we you know the the culture and for all the myriad different reasons why homosexuality has been you know they've been trying to normalize it obviously, and yeah. uh, and yeah. it, 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 we know in the Catholic Church it's identified as. Well, what what would be actually the words? The words. The words. The words that the the words that the catechism catechism use, and I haven't looked it up in a long time. But my dad talks a lot about it. it it's called disordered. Thank um, you. It is called. It is a disordered attraction. Now we need to make this. If I could cut in real quick, Terry, we need to make this explicitly clear. The Catholic Church does not hate homosexuals. It does not. We do not hate people for that attraction. You cannot. You cannot so much choose your attraction, but you can choose what you can do with it. Um, my friend Jason Everett did a great expose on homosexuality. And um, Terry, from a personal point of view, a very close friend of mine struggles with SSA, same-sex attraction. I'll tell you right now, he is leading a heroic uh, heroic struggle to stay pure. Mm-hmm. He goes to daily mass. He praises daily rosary. Um, we talk. He hasn't talked to anyone about it just because he, he's afraid of being looked down. And I can understand that. But um, he's leading a heroic struggle. And I mean, like I said, we do not hate homosexuals, but we, we hate the act. Same thing with, let's say if a couple was cohabitating or for having sex before marriage, we would not hate the couple. We would hate the act. We would hate the sin. That's what we despise, mm-hmm. not the person. There is a problem of homosexuality in the priesthood. There's a huge problem. And, and I think Voris has brought out that there's a gay mafia um, we've read it in the Archdiocese of New York City. Um, the Vatican, they had a gay orgy going on, and I think even uh, priests have come out who were in the Diocese of Newark or Metuchen. I think it I think it was it was either one of those two, Metuchen or Newark, where they were invited to parties and it was it was basically uh, a gay orgy with other uh, other uh, priests. And the priests who went in there who were straight ended up walking out, they said, to hell with this, I'm done. They, they, they would go to a party, and they thought it was just going to be a bunch of priests getting together. You, you know, kind of like when you get together with your buddies watching right. college football, which is coming up. Um, that's going to be a nice distraction, by the way, from this. Woo. But um, but uh, they went to a party, thought it was just going to be sitting down, having some drinks, chilling, relaxing, having dinner, a sit-down dinner. One one priest said, I thought it was a sit-down dinner. Walks He walks in, and there are a bunch of what he calls wolf whistles from uh, the other priests, and he said immediately he knew he was being put on display. And he went over to the bartender, you know, I guess the priest who was handling the bar, and said, "Hey, I'd like a beer." And the priest said to him, "Well, you're going to need something more girly tonight." And the pre the priests in there were carrying around pink cocktails. 
and, and he saw it and he, he left the party. Did he leave the priesthood? I don't know. I'm not sure. He didn't say, but he immediately left the party. So, I mean, I mean, we can stay in denial, but this, this thing is going to continue to fester. So if we stay in denial. Well, I'm not in denial. You're not in denial. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about theology of the body. John Paul II could be with us right now. Maybe what would he be saying? What would he be encouraging about theology of the body that, that you're very well versed on? So we'll be right back. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. James Burkhan, and we are talking about the problems that are going on right now in the Catholic Church, but what is the solution? So we, we've already established that um, no more cover-ups, no more cover-ups, and to identify what the root problem is. And the root problem is many people have infiltrated the Catholic Church in the form of priests, and they are homosexuals. And this has infiltrated the church. It's infiltrated in secrecy. And we know that many, many times that leads to other things such as pedophilia. And so in the hopes that the Catholic Church leadership will, will be bold, will be courageous, will call a sin a sin, and finally flush these problems out, help the victims, prevent new victims. And so one of the solutions, though, is to return to what... Uh, St. John Paul the Great said about theology of the body, not even what he said, what he wrote in theology of the body. Mm -hmm. So, um, James, help us understand, just in a short summary, because I mean, a lot of people listening don't even know, well, maybe not even, they won't even know who John Paul the Great is or was, um, but what do we mean by theology of the body? Well, the theology of the body is, um, it's a work of 129 addresses uh, Wednesday audience addresses that John Paul II gave in the first years of his pontificate, I believe from 1978 to 1985 was when he finished up. But don't quote me for the time he finished up. I, I need to check on that. But um, but basically what the theology of the body is, it, it's the, t- the proper title actually is Human Love in the Divine Plan, A Theology of the Body. And the background is John Paul II saw his country invaded by the Germans, basically raped by the Nazis. Then he saw the communists take over in the form of the USSR, the Soviet Union. He saw freedom of religion repressed. He saw um, you know, millions of people were sent to the gas chambers. Uh, he lived not too far from Auschwitz which was Hitler's killing, you know, everyone likes to talk about the other concentration camps, like Treblinka was Hitler's killing machine. I don't doubt it, but Auschwitz took the cake because when I went there um, in 2003, they said that a lot of people will say, oh, well, they number the victims of Auschwitz at 1.5 million. Um, the people at the, the people at the, at the uh, Auschwitz Museum, it's now a museum, said that was between three to five million people who were slaughtered in that camp. Um, and new statistics that have come out bear that out. So he saw what the Nazis did. He saw what the Soviets did. And then in 1950, 
who brought out his new sexual revolution, our our old buddy Hugh Hefner, right? <laughs> oh, Hugh oh boy. Um, well, he was Hugh Hefner. Alfred Kinsey, remember? Alfred Doctor. Yeah, I remember. Kinsey, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And he, and he forwarded Kinsey's uh, – I remember at your conference, Terry, what was it? He forwarded Kinsey's um, report, correct? Yeah. Basically wanted to become the pamphleteer That's for – and, and Kinsey was – in short, Kinsey was a sadomasochistic pedophile. Kinsey championed free sex um, or, you know, they could, we call – we talk about abortion on demand. Kinsey uh, advertised um, sex on demand as well as homosexuality and just through throughout the moors of um, uh, Christian sexuality. So John Paul and Humana Vitae came out then um, regarding uh, the Catholic Church's stance on artificial contraception or on contraception in general. So John Paul sees all this going on. He sees the dissent. Um, that priest you talked about, uh, Corinne, um, he was a dissenting theologian, and he he wrote against Humana Vitae. Um, he was defrocked from the priesthood, and now he teaches at Southern Methodist. So if any of your listeners have kids at Southern Methodist, do not take Charles Corinne. His name's Charles Corinne. Do not take him. Um, he'll, If anything, he'll give you dissenting opinions. Um, but John Paul sees all this going on, right? He sees the assault on, you know, here's the problem with the theology of the body. We think it's all about sex. It's not. It's about the, it's about the gift of self. You know, how we're created as a gift, how we lose that gift due to sin, and how we're meant to have it back through redemption. John Paul sees all this going on. He sees these assaults, not just on sexuality, but on the self-gift. And he says, and he goes to the pen and paper and to the chapel and starts examining these questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be me? Why did God give us sex? Why did God give us love? Why why did the Nazis why did the Nazis have such a brutal regime? What about the Soviets? How do we answer these questions? Right? And from it, John Paul developed basically a, a what what truly is a new teaching, not just on human sexuality, but on the gift of self. Mm-hmm. Right? And the gift of self being we, we we hear we don't hear about this term enough. The gift of self in short is basically it means you're a new you're a unique unrepeatable human person basically meaning no one like you existed existed before you were born no one like you remotely like you will exist after you're dead right you are the one and only okay you have not just a body or an intellect a mind but you have a heart and a soul a heart where the deepest recesses of the human person exist your passions your desires your hopes for the future um the things that you love your hobbies emanate from your heart the goodness emanates the goodness emanates your desire to do good emanates from your heart the soul which is either enlightened through works of good through the grace of god or is darkened through acts of evil right but you have a rich inner spiritual life in other words you are so much more than just your physical appearance you have something beautiful to give this world you know i think about that uh the line from the disney movie lion king when uh, simba's led through uh led to a, a pool a reflecting pool and he sees his he sees his own reflection, right? And then he's told, no, 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 look harder. And then his guide tells him, you see, he lives in you. And the truth is, it, it, it's a very profound truth. It needs to be uh, uh, grasped again. But it, it, the teaching of the theology of the body is that God lives in every single one of us. You know, He exists in every single one of us, and he's there to lead us to divine life to lead us to redemption, to healing, to wholeness in this life so we can make it into heaven on the next life and be and be div- really divinized like him. 
you know, John Paul, like I said, saw his country invaded by the Nazis, right? And he asked the question, what would cause a normal man, like, let's say myself, like your husband, like guys, you know, what would cause them to turn into mindless killers? What would cause a guy to join, not only join an army, there's nothing wrong with joining um, an army, but not only join it, but he would be brainwashed into believing that a certain race was the problem. Um, he would be trained and he would go into a foreign land, gather up a bunch of men, many of them Jews, hand him a shovel, say, dig a ditch, make him kneel down in the ditch, lock, load his rifle and fire a bullet into the back of their head. Right. John Paul, John Paul examined this and he went back to scripture to find it in Matthew 19, verse three to eight. Um, the Pharisees questioned Christ about the begin uh, about uh, marriage and divorce. And Christ says to them in short, he says, for your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to write a bill of divorce and send your wives away. But from the beginning, it was not so. And what Christ was saying right there is go back to the beginning. Go back to that time when you did not know evil, corruption, or or divorce, or hurt, pain, anger, regret, shame, or anything like that. And what John Paul developed in his theology of the body was he, he examined what the beginning was. And in the beginning, as Catholics, we believe that um, that man existed as Adam and Eve. Adam means uh, man. Eve means mother of all the living. Now, we don't know for sure if the first man and woman, if their names were Adam or Eve. We don't. We do not know that. But what we do know is they existed. And there's proof of that. A guy pointed out a gene called the Ava gene that every single human person has. It comes from one African woman. Okay. But what John, what John Paul examined there was... You know, what was this time that Adam and Eve lived in? And what it's called is original innocence. If you look up the definition of innocence, innocence means freedom from corruption, guilt, defilement. And John Paul saw that innocence as the integrity of the gift or the integral nature of man is what he calls it in the theology of the body. Integrity means uh, wholeness, completeness, purity, chastity, virginity. And what that what John Paul is basically pointing out is that mankind was created in a state like God himself, free from evil. Man did not even know evil or what evil was. Man did not know sin. Man did not know shame, anger, fear, regret, anything like that. That's how God created man, right? John Paul, John Paul uh, that's something that he examined. And like I said, he called it the integrity of the gift. In other words, we live in a world today where we're bombarded by temptations. We feel like we're not fully ourselves, completely ourselves. We feel like, for example, a past relationship, we gave a piece of our heart away or something like that. John Paul would basically say, no, that's not how it was meant to be from the beginning. Here's how it was meant to be. The full and complete gift of self is what every single human person was meant to have, right? Now, if I could give you a little bit of theology, then I'll wrap this up. Someone else, now what caused stuff to go off the rails? There was another character that entered the scene. Um, those who know, of course, a lot of people have heard of the devil. I hope people still believe that he exists because – Man, if this PA grand jury report doesn't make you doesn't make you think that there's evil, then I don't know what does. I know, um, I know. But Lucy, there's some people out there who don't believe that there's a devil, yeah. that there's Satan. It's like, and he's oh yeah, oh he he exists. I mean, he exists. And actually, uh, a saint said that the people who are most likely to go to hell are those who deny that evil exists, that deny Satan exists. It's kind of like you don't believe he exists. Well, you're going to be spending eternity with him. So, you know, I. You know, I'd at least acknowledge that he exists right now so you can avoid that for all eternity. Um, but, you know, Lucifer, 
Stacey Elder is the author of Captivating, uh, comes out. And uh, Captivating is a beautiful book on Christian femininity. Her husband, John Eldridge, wrote a book on uh, mass Christian masculinity called Wild at Heart. And I'd encourage your readers to get their hands on those books. Those books are absolutely beautiful. But she says that Lucifer, his name means uh, light bearer or light giver. Right. He was the greatest being created by God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He was the greatest being outside of the Trinity. Right. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But he fell. Why did he fell? Stacey Eldridge says that he was perfect in beauty that caused him to become jealous. And there go. He fell. Well, that, that has something to do with it. The church fathers and Maximilian Colby bring up something very interesting regarding Lucifer that they say that they, they believe now this is all speculation. So this is theological speculation. So just so people know, this is not put in doctrine or anything. Um, but this is a school. I, I, I believe um, this is a school of thought that I believe in Lucifer. Maximilian Colby says that the angels were given a test to know if they would serve God or serve themselves. And they were shown the incarnation, Jesus Christ becoming man. Okay. But if they saw the incarnation, they would have also seen someone else. I know the Blessed Mother is a huge lightning rod, and she shouldn't be, but she is. The angelic beings would have also seen a young woman, no younger than 12, no older than 16, who would bear the God-made man, and she would have the greatest proximity to the Trinity, a closeness that none of the angelic beings could ever have. What I believe and what the Church Fathers believe is that, is that Lucifer saw this, and his rebellion, as much as it had to do with wanting to be like God, apart from God. He wanted God's power, but not God's authority over him. I believe it also had to do with Lucifer wanting to target the Blessed Mother. And there's a nun named Maria Agreda, who uh, was, she wrote The Mystical City of God, which is basically a two, 3,000 page um, encyclopedia on the life of the Blessed Mother. And she's given a mystical vision of Lucifer's conversation with God. And in that conversation, Lucifer said, I will destroy the Blessed Mother. I will destroy this most precious creation of you. If you think about this, right? Now, again, like I said, this is theological speculation. You know, it makes sense why there's so many crimes against women, why there's abortion. Like if the incarnation is is God's greatest human achievement, then if, if, it, if it points to God's ultimate sacrament, which is the Eucharist in the Catholic Church— Jesus Christ becoming man, we, when we receive communion, we take in his body, blood, soul, and divinity so he can divinize us, right? Mm -hmm. Then if that is the greatest sacrament, and the incarnation points us to the greatest sacrament, then abortion is Satan's greatest sacrilege. It's so grievous. It's so it's so hurtful. Absolutely. How, Absolutely. How can theology of the body help the victims? With the, with the writings of... Um, uh, St. John Paul the Great, how can his writings help the victims? If you had a room full of victims, what would you be telling the victims right now in hopes that your words could help them heal? What would you tell them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, what I think what the victims need to be told, and I have relatives who were, were abused, you know, so this hits home in a very deep way, in a very gut-wrenching way. Um, with the victims, what they need to know is, you know, I would tell them, I'm deeply sorry, you know, and I'm, I'm from the bottom of my heart, from the depths of my soul, I'm sorry for the hurt that you dealt with, for what's been done to you, 
for how you've been harmed, how you've been used, betrayed, and shamed and humiliated. Um, there's no room for that in the Catholic Church. And I would say, too, I would say that's not what the Catholic Church is all about either. You know, we are, John Paul's theology of the body is about raising up the human person to the proper level that we are a reflection of God's love, of his. He, he, he loved us so much that he decided to create the human race because he wants a huge family to be with him uh, after the end times have come. You know, that's what he wants. He wants, you know, we call it the wedding feast of the lamb. He basically wants everyone to be part of the party at the end of the day and in eternity. Um, how John Paul can really help heal, how the theology of the body can help heal is, you know, it helps you discover who you are as a man or a woman. It shows you where you've been wounded. It shows you where um, where theological history has to do with it. For example, you, you know, with Lucifer targeting the woman and child. You know, there's nothing that Satan hates more than innocence because he's not innocent anymore. Right. You know, and yes, real quick, yes, we, if we go back real quick, how this ties in, how the theology of the body ties in in Lucifer's right. rebellion, he wants to crush innocence wherever he can find it. And the two most punished sins in hell are abortion and homosexuality. What do those both do? They one annihilates innocence, the innocence of the the innocence and being of the child through abortion. The other one annihilates the innocence of the child. In their humanity through the acts of uh, homosexual depravity that prey on children. Mm. John John Paul talks about um, he acknowledges how we've fallen, but he also encourages us to return to what is called the value of the gift of self or the value of the virginal gift. What that means value means to have. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fumbling for words for value. Value basically means to have an equal return to what was lost or to what um, something had before. Right. What John Paul is saying is through the redemption of Jesus Christ is we're not we're not meant to be the summation of our wounds or what's been done to us, what we've right. done in the past. Yeah. We are meant to be, he would say. We are the summation of the Father's love for us. And that does not just mean that you go to confession or you're sorry for your sins. The priest says the words of absolution and, and you're forgiven. And that is very important. I'm not going to downplay that. But the words of absolution are meant to lead us to something even greater. And that's healing and wholeness in our own hearts, in our own lives. Basically meaning you've been wounded. You know, you've, you've lost this part of yourself or you've given this part of yourself away. or this part In the, victim, in the case of the victims, this has been taken from you. Right. right. John Paul would say, here's how it's meant to be restored. Here's how it's meant to be given to you once again. Here's how you're meant to have a heart made whole and new, which is greater than ever before. Your minds, the memories of the past are meant to lose their sting. You, you will all if you've been abused, you will always remember you've been abused. You will. You unfortunately, you will never forget that in this life, but it will lose its sting because you've been healed. A good friend of mine, Jason Everett, his wife, Crystalina, she was molested as a little girl and you know, she says something remarkable. She says, I'm not ashamed anymore because I've been healed. And the fact that you can tell she's been healed because she just she speaks like a woman who's been made new. We'll be right back. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. 
Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. All right, I'm back with James Bergman, and we are digging into what's been happening with the Catholic Church, you know, the scandal that's going on. Uh, James is very well read in a man by the name of St. Maximilian Kolbe, and I thought this would be a, a perfect a little segue to introduce who was St. Maximilian Kolbe and why is his story so perfect for today for the average American to at least be introduced to this man who gave it all. So, Jimmy, just real quick, tell us who was, who was Maximilian Kolbe? Right, right. Maximilian Kolbe, I mean, you're, you're, there, you know, John Paul the Great would say in in the designs of Providence, there's no such thing as a mere coincidence. And this report came out on August 14th, the feast day of Maximilian Kolbe, when he was martyred by the Nazis in Auschwitz. And I can't help but, as much as this is a travesty, just be amazed at God's providential care. Because Maximilian Kolbe, um, who was born Raymond, he took on Maximilian Kolbe when he became, he took on the name Maximilian when he became a priest. Um, he was a mischievous child, and his mother was punishing him one day, and she said, Raymond, who knows what will become of you? And this struck young little Raymond right to the core, and he would go to church and pray, and through tears in his eyes, he would constantly ask God, what will become of me? What will become of me? And one day, the Blessed Mother appeared to him. She looked down at him tenderly with love and affection. He looked up at her and said, what will become of me? And she holds out her hands with two crowns, one white, one red. And she says, Raymond, these are two crowns I'd love to give you. The white crown means you will be pure. You'll live a life of purity. The red crown means you will die a martyr. Which one would you like? And he said, I want both. And she, she looked at him affectionately once again and she disappeared. Raymond went on to become a priest. He founded an order of Franciscans called the Militia Immaculata or the MI. And their whole design was to conquer the world for Jesus Christ through the hand of the Immaculata. And he developed the Militia Immaculata after witnessing a Masonic protest in Rome. The the, the Masonic Lodge that everyone thinks is harmless, Maximilian Kolbe called it the head of the serpent. And they were protesting in Rome saying... Just so people understand, we're talking about Freemasonry, right? The Masons. Freemasonry, that's right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. The Masonic... Yep, Freemasons. So they... they, they were having a protest in Rome, and they had posters that said, Satan will rule from the Vatican. Some that I find very, very troubling, but very specific to today, because Paul VI, who put out Humana Vitae, said the smoke of Satan has infiltrated the church. Um, and they also, the Freemasons also had a banner showing Satan um, deposing St. Michael the Archangel. In the Catholic Church, we have statues of St. Michael the Archangel with his foot on the head of Satan, ready to stab him in the skull to finish him off. 
Well, this was the reverse. Satan was finishing off St. Michael, the archangel. Colby saw this and he said, I'm not going to let this happen. Something needs to be done about it. Okay. Fast forward to 1939, the Germans invade Poland. In 1941, Colby is arrested and taken to uh, a prison called uh, Paviak Prison. Uh, a Nazi guard sees him wearing his Franciscan robe with his rosary. He walks up to Colby, grabs the rosary, shakes it, puts it in Colby's face and says, you Polish pig, do you believe in this? Colby looks him dead in the eye and says, I do. And how? And a, a flurry of blows followed. The Nazi officer kept asking, Colby, do you believe? Do you believe? Every time Colby said, yes, I believe. And knowing, and the SS guard, knowing that he couldn't get Colby to deny uh, the rosary or the Blessed Mother, he stormed out of the cell. The other prisoners with him were very shaken. Colby got up and started pacing. Colby saw they were shaken. And Colby said, Colby said, my sons, do not worry about me. Just pray. You know, this was after this man just had the living daylights beaten out of him. At Auschwitz, we talk about being a real priest. Colby was immersed with the victims of Auschwitz. Yes, he prayed for his persecutors because he knew they were going to hell and he wanted to prevent that. But he was immersed with the victims. He gave them hope, right? There was one young boy, a Jewish boy, okay? Um, this was in the time when the Catholics and Jews did not get along in Poland. A Jewish boy's family was taken to Auschwitz. His entire family was sent to the gas chambers. He was selected for work. Colby found him meandering outside the barracks one day, tears in his eyes. Colby went up to him and started started talking to him. And Colby gave him hope, gave him support, gave him love. The young boy said Colby was like a mother hen putting his wing around his put his wing around him to guard him. That young boy, who was a Jew, and Jews were selected for extermination after one month of work. He survived Auschwitz. There was another doctor who helped Colby in the hospital, right? And Colby said, doctor, you've been so kind to me. I'd like to do something for you. May I hear your confession, please? The doctor looked at Colby. He said, father, I'm not Catholic. And second of all, how can you believe in God in a place like this, in a place like Auschwitz? Colby invited him to talk. And Colby said to the doctor, he said, you will survive this camp. You will come back to your faith. That man survived the camp. He came back to his faith. Okay which was a miracle in Auschwitz. The man, this doctor survived four years in the camp. And this was a prison doctor, not a Nazi doctor. He survived that camp, like that young Jewish boy. Mm -hmm. Last story I'll give, and then I'll talk about Colby's martyrdom. Um, he, there was a man who lived in a bear, uh, lived in a, a cell block, who ten, like five to 10 men were selected every week for execution at the wall of death. They line you up against a brick wall, make you strip naked, then they fire a shot into the back of your head, you were dead. He realized that the next week coming up, his number would be selected. So he went to confession with Colby. Colby heard his confession. The next week, this man's number was overlooked. He was not selected. And then the next week passed. He was still not selected. Then the next week and the next week passed. He was still not selected. The Nazis came back to find the numbers that they missed, and he was overlooked. He survived the camp. Okay? Now, there was a day in July 1941 when a prisoner escaped. And as punishment, 10 men were selected to die by starvation. Okay? So the SS commandant came to a bunch of men, came to the cell block, I believe it was cell block 14, and said, the prisoner has not been found in retribution. Ten of you will die by starvation. The next time a prisoner escapes, it's going to be 20. And these men were given just a meager ration of soup within in the last 48 hours. They were standing in the sun all day. Many of them collapsed. The last, so Fritch went about selecting every, selecting the men. The last man he chose was a Polish sergeant by the name of Francis Gaujanacek. 
And Gajanacek cried out, my wife, my children, what will they do? I'll never see them again. And something happened in Auschwitz that had never happened before. A man stepped out of line, walked towards the commandant, Commandant Fritz. There was a, a, a legend that a Nazi rifleman picked up his rifle and aimed it at Colby and said, what do you want? Colby said, I'd like to speak to the commandant, please. And inexplicably, inexplicably, I can only think it was the hand of the Blessed Mother, the SS guard lowered his rifle. And I believe it was the hand of the Blessed Mother who lowered it to make sure Colby was protected. He walked up to Fritz, and Fritz pulled out the pistol from his boot. He said, what does this Polish pig want? And Colby looked him dead in the eye, took his cap off, and said, I wish to die in the place of one of these men. That man who has a wife and children, Fritz, who just took sadistic pleasure in being really a dealer of death at Auschwitz, the prisoners say he took a step back. And he looked at Colby dead in the eye and he said, why? Colby said, "The Colby said, I'm old and good for nothing. This man can still work. And then Fritz said, who are you? Colby said, I am a Catholic priest. And then Fritz kicked Gajanicek back into line. He accepted Colby's... Uh, he accepted Colby's willingness to die in the starvation bunker. And as they were let off this July evening, the prisoners will – all the prisoners will say as Colby and the other nine men were let off to the starvation bunker, they had never seen a sunset like that in their lives. Wow. The sky was painted blood red, the color of martyrs, almost like all of heaven was affirming Colby's decision. I mean it was the color of martyrs. When he went into the cell, men in the cell – would scream, they'd gnash their teeth, they'd grab at the walls, they even tried to cannibalize one another. The Nazis pulled out two bodies from the starvation bunker. I'm not sure if it was Colby's bunker or another bunk. There were several bunkers in the uh, subterranean cell where he was taken, but two bodies were pulled out with bite marks. In the fury of Hungary, these men tried to, tried to cannibalize one another to save off hunger. They were not given any food or water till they were dead. They had a bucket in there for their sanitary needs. The bucket was always empty. The men basically ate their excrement and drank their urine to stave off the pangs of hunger, oh, right? Okay. And people people don't understand. I mean, when, when you're hungry, it consumes everything about you. It, it becomes an obsession. Um, and this comes from a former inmate of Auschwitz who said that. Um, when Colby was in there, though, he led the men in patriotic songs, in hymns, in the rosary. He would always be in the middle of the cell, either standing or kneeling. And the Nazis would come in every single day to pull body, dead bodies out. They had to actually yell and stomp, on the, stomp their boots on the ground to get their attention. They were so immersed in prayer. Colby would look at the guards with a look of affection as if his eyes were saying, let me hear your confession and absolve you from this evil. And the guards would yell at Colby, look at the ground, not at us. Mm-hmm. Well, August 14th, um, they need the cell, the subterranean cell, for a new round of prisoners. Colby's in there with three other men who are unconscious. Colby is uh, sitting against the wall. And he's very focused on one fixed point within the cell. Um, The doctor comes in to inject him with carbolic acid, which is basically battery acid. It hits your vein. You're dead within a few seconds. You're dead before you hit the ground. Well, this doctor came up to inject Colby with it. Colby lifted his arm, his right arm, to receive the injection. After two weeks in a starvation bunker, that is physically impossible. He should not have been able to do that. And he was injected, and they actually said that his eyes just had a look of peace and serenity and pure joy, like his body was radiating light in that cell. Well, 
people who love Colby believe this, and I believe it too, that at the moment of his death, the Blessed Mother, who had seen, who had appeared to Colby so long ago before as a child, came to see him one last time. Like she looked at him with affection and tenderness so many years before, she did the same inside, inside that cell. And right when he was about to be injected, she reached her hand out to grab Colby's hand. Colby met her, and she took him home to his heavenly reward and left it printed in his eyes, a vision of the kingdom he was heading home to. How does this apply to today, Terry? I mean, it's just, it, it reads like an epic story, like a Mel Gibson epic film. I mean, and, and a film needs to be made about him. I mean, he is he is so needed nowadays. What does this what does this teach us? How does this tie into the scandal? Colby was all about the victims. He did not save just one life. He saved thousands of lives in that camp because he gave people hope to continue on. Thousands of men survived because of Colby. They owe their life to him, not just to John Acek, the man he saved from the starvation bunker. He shows us what a real priest is. He shows us a priest who cares for the victims, who gives it, lays down his life for his sheep, a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who goes to a horrendous death for their sake. And I mean, we have great priests coming up, you know, and God willing, we'll have another priest come up who's in the fashion of a Maximilian Colby, but he shows not only priests, but men, what a real man looks like, that he dedicates his life to the woman he loves and that he protects his flock like Colby protected the people at Auschwitz and he makes sure they get home to heaven. That's what a real priest is. And there is there is no mistake that that report came out on the 14th when we saw the depth and depravity of what, of what men can be, of what a priest should not be. We also celebrate what a real priest is. Well, what, what, what the penultimate priest looks like. So, I mean, all I have to say after that is say, Maximilian Colby, pray for us and pray for this church. And may we get more priests like you. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today on What If We've Been Wrong. So thank you so much. You got it. All right, I'm just going to wrap this up with my own personal reflections. It's just, it's a tragedy that this has happened, and it's happened in so many different places in the United States of America. Um, I pray for the victims, and I pray that the victims can receive the help that they need, and I encourage any victims uh, to to learn more and more uh, about theology of the body. Uh, so, because uh, therein, therein is so much of the of the answer and the healing that can take place. Uh, and then lastly, I just encourage any, any bishops out there to be bold, to be brave, to not worry about what your fellow bishops are going to say. You do the right thing. You write you know, the long letter to your, to your flock in your diocese and then expose what needs to be exposed and, and, and hopefully, hopefully uh, that the... I don't know if the worst is yet to come. I don't know. Who am I to guess that? But um, I just think that there's going to be a whole lot more. But this Catholic Me Too uh, movement, it's not going to go away until the house is cleaned up. And as a woman who, you know, probably once a year does a deep, deep housekeeping um, you know, where you go into every nook and cranny, every corner, you pull in the ladder and you go on top of the kitchen cabinets and you, you, you clean out all that dust. It's just time. It's just time. There are too many victims. There's too much pain. And we need leadership, 
leadership to say no more. This is it. And you're willing to call a sin a sin. It doesn't mean that you hate the sinner. Nobody, nobody's talking about hating the sinner. But we are talking about hating the sin, calling out a sin a sin, and this whole movement of homosexuals, particularly in America, where they call it gay pride, pride you know, pride is a terrible thing. Pride is not a good thing to be looking up toward. You know, pride, uh, pride is corrosive. It's bad. It's evil. And so, so this thing called gay pride, homosexual pride, homosexuality is a sin. Uh, and lastly, pride is something really, really bad. And we're told not to have it. <laughs> so let's just get back to the basics and watch what can happen. And, and watch the healing that can take place. So with that, I'm going to sign off, just trying to shine some light in dark places. And I think uh, James Burkon, he's just got a real gift to, uh, for explaining. So thank you for being on, and we will see you next week.